Well, again, hello. Good to be back with you uh, and, and to be sharing with you. Um, <clears throat> my mind is filled with wonderful memories of this place and my brothers and sisters here. Um, I'm on a sentimental journey recently. Um, yesterday, sadly, but uh, a celebration, I went to a funeral of the minister who brought Jesus to me when I was 16 years old. <laughs> uh, he was in Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> His name was Howard Gifford, and he happened to be the pastor of Beverly Brown, who is my wife. And I started dating her and their family. I think I've shared this with you, but her parents said to me, if you want to keep dating our daughter, you have to come to church with us. And I thought, I'll put up with anything to be with her. <laughs> then I met Howard Gifford. Most of you have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. And he took me aside and said, Jerry, you need Jesus. Yeah, but I got Beverly. <laughs> you need Jesus. <laughs> and what a wonderful pilgrimage. So I, I just thank God for a man who had the mind of Christ and lived the life of Christ. And I'm really grateful for that. And that's a good segue into the passage I want to look at this morning. Um, we're going to read in its entirety the whole chapter of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Um, I usually don't do that, but I do think the context is so important for you to understand what does it mean to have the mind of Christ and what was Paul talking about, about the place of the Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to read along with me. It's on page 952 of your pew Bibles. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart these in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. A little overwhelming, is it not? <laughs> what is God doing? What is Paul wanting us to understand? Well, to put it in a further context, before we delve into this, I want to just step back further and remind you of some important things about the Christian faith. You know, there are many unique things, aren't there, about the Christian faith. For example, the person and work of Jesus makes the Christian faith unlike any other religion in the world. Jesus is the only one who claimed equality with God. And he also claimed there is no other way to come to God but through me. That's pretty unique, isn't it? No other religion has that kind of a leader that would say that. Then there's this book we call the Bible. <laughs> A book that claims itself to be God's very word. And in essence, in essence, it explains everything about life and what we need to know. Who God is. Who you are. Why the world is the way it is. And how to be right with God. No other book gives you a full explanation of that. That's a unique thing to have in the Christian faith. But I would suggest you another foundational uniqueness to the Christian faith is that it is truly supernatural. Supernatural. That means it's beyond our means to understand and apply in our lives. You can't understand the Christian faith naturally. Something supernatural has to happen. It's so unique that what Paul's already alluded to. It's so unique, it's already an insult to the natural mind of anybody outside of a relationship with God. You and I, the Bible says, can never understand anything about eternal life apart from the eternal spirit of God. Yes, we all have minds that are capable of speculating about life, morality, politics, and even about God. But if we don't have the spirit of God, you really don't understand. I really don't understand. No matter how smart I am, no matter how wise I am, if I don't have the spirit of God. So that's the importance of seeing what Paul was going on after here when it comes to understanding the Christian faith. So what I want to just suggest as a backdrop as we unfold this this idea of the mind of Christ is simply this. To have the mind of Christ means you are striving to think like Jesus and equally you are striving to live like Jesus. You can't have one without the other. To have the mind of Christ is to have the understanding of Christ but leads to the application of Christ in life. Although this section of scripture could easily, I suggest, become a lengthy sermon series, uh, I want to remind you of two basic principles of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ, to have a mind captured and controlled 
by the Spirit of God to have that mind of Christ. Two things to consider. The first is this. To think like Christ, you and I must have the same source of knowledge. We can't have different pockets. We have to have the same source. Where is that mind source for Jesus? Where does that come from? I know I've already alluded to that fact, but let's not gloss over it. What, what exactly does that mean and how does it work? And I would suggest to understand that source of knowledge, it's a threefold approach here. The first is the essence of the knowledge of that wisdom. Where does that come from? Just what does that mean? And I would suggest in this Bible, which is unique, from Genesis to Revelation, you find a persistent theme about the, the essence of this knowledge. And that essence is declared in this phrase. It comes from the knowledge of God. You want to understand what, it, what the essence of understanding in life? It comes from knowing God. Think about it. The very opening phrase of this book, the Bible, the book of Genesis. Most of you know this, but let me just quickly remind you. I would, I would suggest to you the opening phrase of the entire Bible sets the tone for the rest of scriptures. It's one of the most profound and life-forming assumptions anybody could ever make. In the beginning, God. Let's, maybe this sounds a little bit childish or schoolish, but let's recite that together. Four words, the opening words of the Bible. Let's recite that together slowly. In the beginning, God. I could close in prayer right now. I mean, think about it. If you don't get anything else from what I'm about to say, let that haunting phrase be your life. In the beginning, God. That's the source. That's the essence of what this is about. I think Paul alludes to that in verse 7. Did you catch that? When he says this wisdom which God decreed, and the phrase is, before the ages for our glory. In other words, Paul is saying there was a time before there was time, before the ages, there was a time before beginning. Almighty God had no beginning, but everything we see did, and it came only from God. Now, friends, to have a relationship with this triune God, it's actually to have wisdom and understanding. The scriptures are filled with that message, aren't they? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, and that comes knowledge and understanding. The essence of understanding the way God, the way Christ thought was he had a knowledge of his father. That was the essence of it. But the second thing I want to look at is not only the essence, but the uniqueness of this this uh, wisdom, this knowledge, this mind of Christ, it was unique. It is unique. It's not like the wisdom of the world in any way, is it? It's, it's hidden. It's unknowable to the natural mind. Look again at verse 14. I hope you pick that up. What does Paul say? The natural person does not accept the things 
of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, that's a pretty bold declaration. (laughs) You can't understand God at all apart from his spirit. But more than that, the natural mind actually sees it as foolish and offensive. But here's a cautionary reminder for you and I as believers when it comes to sharing sharing our knowledge of Christ. You and I don't have to be offensive in how we share Jesus, do we? We shouldn't be offensive in how we do it. But we should not be surprised when people are offended by the message. Not by you, but by the message. That makes no sense. That's stupid. That somebody else has to make me right for God if there is a God. That's foolish. Somebody had to die for me. I don't want to hear that anymore. It's stupid and foolish to the natural mind. But the Bible is filled, isn't it, with warnings and reminders about how much we need God. Proverbs 3 clearly states it, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not what? On your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Friends, it's a unique thing to know God by his spirit. And the third aspect I want to suggest to you of of this essence, this, this uniqueness, is this instrument of this knowledge. To know God, his, his essence, the uniqueness of it, but the instrument of how that knowledge is known. And the instrument is nothing less than the living presence of God. Again, if you look at verse 10, he's showing you that the Spirit reveals this. The living presence of God is never stagnant. It's always searching and revealing. The word search here that you see in verse 10 is is this idea of penetrating, of examining, of investigating. The Spirit of God is digging deep and revealing and exposing. The Spirit of God is the hope of how we see and understand. That's what he does. He knows He searches even the deep things of God. He alone has a corner on the market of who God is. And if you have the spirit of God, you have the mind of God. Think about that for more than 30 seconds. If you have the spirit of almighty God, you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of God. What does that mean? What should that do to you and I as followers of Christ? And only the Spirit knows that person. Apart from him, uh, we really can't. I think as a side note, it's important for you and I as believers, you and I should have a continual hunger for the Spirit of God to be working. And there's no better place to see that than in Psalm 139 when David concludes, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Show me where I am. Search me, God. Don't leave me alone. Don't leave me to my own understanding. You and I as believers, that should be a continual prayer for us in our walk with Christ. 
But I also suggest to you that this mind of Christ that Jesus had was linked to the knowledge of God, uh, its essence, its uniqueness, its instrument of the spirit. But I would suggest to you a second principle to understanding the way Jesus thought. It was always tethered to God's revealed word. Jesus was never on his own. He was always referring to the revealed word that God had given And I think that's an important thing for you and I to understand, to have a true understanding of a biblical mindset or to have the mind of Christ. We have to see it in the context of God's revealed word written down for us, this unique book. The mind of God is revealed in the word of God by the spirit of God. And that's implied, too, in verse 13 when Paul is talking about the fact that the words they are teaching are not human wisdom. They come from God. What I am teaching you when I should be in the pulpit is somebody is proclaiming not my word, but thus says the Lord. This is God's word. Jesus was tethered to the history of the revealed word of God. In other words, the final authority for all wisdom and knowledge can only be found through the filter of God's revealed word, illuminated by his spirit. Friends, God is not what we perceive, but what he has revealed. Remember what Moses said in in Deuteronomy 6. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things The revealed things belong to you and your children. You want to know God? You want to know what life is supposed to be about? God said, I've made it known. It's right here. I've had it written down. Jesus knew that that history was part of his history. Again, my knowledge of God is not primarily based on what he means to me. His love, joy, and peace, those are wonderful, rich benefits. But it's based on who he really is which is revealed only in his word. Jesus lived in the context of that revealed word. But I would suggest to you, Paul ends this section in verses 14 through 16 as he began with a clear distinction between worldly and spiritual wisdom. One commentator put it this way as he tried to explain the difference between worldly and spiritual wisdom. He says this, quote, worldly wisdom is based on intuition and experience without revelation and thus has severe limitations. He goes on to say this, the failure to recognize these limitations brings biblical condemnation on all who attempt to cope with spiritual issues by human wisdom. God is an appendage. God is somebody to go to. I know what I need when I need it. This commentator is saying that will literally kill your soul. You'll never understand God with that kind of an approach. But do you see the fullness the fullness and the culmination of the work of God's spirit, the fullness and the culmination of God's ongoing work of the spirit is not a principle, it's a person. When the revealed word of God by his spirit opens your eyes, you see Jesus. 
The primary work of the Spirit is to open your eyes and mind to see the risen Christ. To understand that when I have Christ, I have the mind of Almighty God in Christ. But it doesn't stop there, does it? To say I have the mind of Christ means I also am called to live like Christ. I can't be satisfied with just in my closet saying, I know Jesus, we talk, we have a good time, I feel good with him. But I don't like the rest of the world. (laughs) And I don't like people. No, you live the way Christ lived. We have just seen in Paul's life how the truly spiritual person lives, don't we? Paul gives us a living teaching example. His words were backed up by the credibility of his own life. Words that he would declare about himself, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And he even goes on to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He is making a statement about the mind of Christ. I want to live a life that honors Jesus. He truly knew what it means to know Christ and to make him known. He loved, I hope you sensed it here, Paul loved the body of Christ as much as he loved the person of Christ. He couldn't separate them two. If I love Jesus, I love his people, for that's where the mind of Christ resides. You know, a Christian response uh, to this uh, is simply this, that someone who proclaims Christ is somebody who's been awakened by God's spirit. Awakened to be able to see their need for a savior and to actually commit themselves to that savior. The work of salvation is not something you and I initiate or we bring to pass. It all begins with God pursuing us and working in our hearts, our circumstances, our relationships, our very lives. You and I who know Jesus have come to a point where we've realized increasingly or even suddenly, life doesn't make sense without him. And that I'm actually lost and even condemned without him. That's a point you and I must be at almost on a daily basis too. As a Christian, we are now spiritually alive. And to be alive is to both have the presence of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the mind of Christ that is visible in the life of Christ in you. And I would suggest you consider this. What, what, is, what does that mean for Jesus? What do you think Jesus thinks when he knows that you and I have his presence with you? And you, have, you and I have access to everything Jesus says. What, what do you think that means, means to Jesus? To know that my people have everything. I've given them my love, my life, my spirit. They have everything. He's holding nothing back. His death and resurrection by the power of his spirit has guaranteed a uniqueness of a relationship with him. The world could never understand. I think one of the richest ways that Jesus explains his relationship to you and me as followers 
is declared in, in John 15. John says this as Jesus was looking at his disciples. He said this to his disciples. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, listen to what he says. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Everything my father told me about, I've told you. I've given you everything I have that the father has given me. But friends, you and I know that came at a cost, didn't it? Have you ever been rejected by someone? Not just anyone, but maybe someone you loved and you trusted. You really thought this was great. This is a good relationship. But that person, for some reason, betrayed or walked away from you. And in addition, you couldn't understand why. Have you ever been to that point? Where, what, what did I do to make you do this and say what you, what do you, where did that come from? Friends, you and I know that Jesus experienced something he had never known before. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, had trusted his father with everything in this broken world. Jesus was somehow mysteriously abandoned by his father. He felt forsaken by the very presence of the spirit of his father. My God, my God, why? Why have you walked away from, I, where's your spear? Why? My father, why? Why did he do this? Why does Jesus get what he didn't deserve? You're not, your wisdom and mine will never answer that question. It's got to come from here, doesn't it? Why did God do, why, why did God do that to his son? The only penetrating reason the Bible gives, the only reason for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, stop asking why and say thanks be to God. He actually loved me and has given everything for me. It's one of the richest benefits that we have is that we can know the mind of Christ, but we can live the life of Christ because of him. In closing, I want to give you an application of, of how I've seen that manifested uh, the story is that there was a young couple over 40 years ago who left their convenient location to go to a distant place to a seminary. And they felt the call of God and felt like God was calling them to this season and this life. Um, and, but it was scary because they had to give up everything. They had to, to go with very little money and, and a new venture in life, but they, they were being confirmed by others around them, and it seemed like, okay, this is the right risk to take. They did that. They came with joyful anticipation, but a little bit trembling, 
They felt God was clearly calling them, and they stepped out in faith. But the story unfolds that no sooner did they come than tragedy struck. The very weekend they moved in, his wife was having a miscarriage. In addition, all the funding that they were assured was going to be there fell through. They had nothing. They had nothing. They didn't have insurance. They were still trying to figure out how to settle in. But in 24 hours, what they thought was the will of God was collapsing around them. Fear, anxiety, doubt. They were the themes of the day. They were distraught and weary, weeping. What is going on? But the thing was not interesting, providential by God's grace. There was a knock on the door and a local pastor who they didn't know from a local church showed up with some congregants with bags of groceries to say, we heard what you're going through. We want to be here with you and walk through this with you. They didn't just have the mind of Christ, did they? (laughs) They had the life of Christ. That's a very powerful reminder because that was our family. (laughs) When my wife and I moved here over 40 years ago to go to Westminster Seminary, thinking this is the right thing to do, and we're trusting God with the little faith that we had, and within 24 hours, we're looking at each other saying, where's Jesus? What just happened? We can't handle this. But a group of believers, sort of like you, Third Reform, just heard that some other believer had a great need. And they came with the mind of Christ, the words of Christ that were comforting to us. But just as powerfully, they came with the presence of Christ. They came with the love of Jesus. You and I are a people who need to see that we need to know Christ and he has made himself known by his spirit. And we have that mind, but brothers and sisters, it's a mind that calls us to life, doesn't it? Let's know Christ, but let's make him known. May third reform have a growing reputation. You already have that, but a growing reputation of a people who have the mind of Christ and know what that means. Amen. Let's pray together. Our good and gracious Father, what a Lord God you are. You have come to seek and to save, and you have shown us that love in so many ways. And Jesus, thank you that by your death and resurrection, by your promise, by your giving of the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need for life and godliness, no matter what trials we face that the Lord God reigns. Oh, God, thank you for that reminder. But I pray for us even this day that we would be a people who take that call seriously to know our Savior, his mind, his heart, and to live that life for his sake. And we pray in his precious and holy name. Amen.